I would like to talk to you about the economic future of the country because I remain convinced as I have. I was convinced of this in World War II. I was convinced of it during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the financial crisis, that nothing can basically stop America. Hello and welcome to the Investment Hour from the Investors Chronicle. If you hadn't already guessed it from that clip, this week we're going to be talking about investing the Warren Buffett way. Yes, it's a turbulent time for the markets, which makes it an ideal time to check in with the Sage of Omaha to understand how he and his company are dealing with coronavirus. And this links very nicely to something we have been discussing a lot in the last few weeks, investor behaviour and how it is causing some rather strange movements. I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm John Human, and we'll be joined today by Mary McDougall, Nilushi Karunaratne and Algie Hall to discuss the quirks of behavioural finance, the wisdom of Warren Buffett and the way all this ties in with the IC's new ideas farm. And of course we'll be joined by Phil Oakley later in the podcast to hear his musings on the latest market news. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. We heard from Warren Buffett at the beginning there, and the reason he's been in the news again this week is because it was the Berkshire Hathaway AGM. Usually, it's a big old party, and when I say big, I mean stadium-sized big, literally. Um, And when I say stadium-sized big, I mean Upton Park and not Leighton Orient. That's 40,000 people who aren't familiar with the seating capacity of redundant East London football stadia. Uh, Of course, lockdown has put a bit of a dampener on the Buffett Jamboree this year. Um, You had a listen, Megan. A bit more of a muted affair this year, I gather. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, he still had this massive stadium. He was sitting on the stage with Greg Abel, who's his head of investment, so he's in charge of everything apart from the insurance part of the business. And he was sitting there with his can of cherry coke, and Greg had his can of normal coke, and it was just empty. It was just this massive empty room, and he was. I mean, first of all, he was talking for for quite a long time. Six six hours, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a six-hour live uh, broadcast. Uh, That is including all the questions. But yeah, the first, it starts with him sort of saying about that clip we heard at the beginning and how he still believes in America. But then he goes on to give a history of America, starting with the Louisiana Purchase. And it's... um, yeah, it's just it's Warren talking for for about six hours, and yeah, normally normally this event is called the Woodstock of Capitalism, and there is normally a, a bit more of a party atmosphere. But uh, but yeah, I think people were still sending questions in, and there were thousands and thousands of people listening to see what he had to say. I mean, he's the person you want to be asking questions to at this sort of time, and. And he got them. Right, so he got asked lots of questions, but I don't think I don't think a lot of people quite got the answers that they wanted. I mean, usually you can sort of rely on Buffett to say everything's going to be okay. Uh, you know, be, uh, be be buying buying shares. You know, the market's always going to going to work for you. But um, but, it, but it was a bit more uh, circumspect. I think it's fair to say uh, in his answers this year. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I mean he's obviously recently taken a big hit on one of his holdings, selling the airlines after only a few years of after buying them. So that's yeah. I mean maybe he's he's feeling the pain of that loss quite heavily. And yeah, I think he he also is probably looking at it's it's not a great it, it's not a, a great time. The next few years are, are likely to be quite difficult for the investment world if the economic forecasts are as 
stark as they have have been suggested in both the UK and the US. Well, I think he's. I think what he's saying about the economic forecast is that we just can't really rely on them. I think the the quote that that, that struck me was he says the range of possibilities on the economic side is still very wide. So so that you know there's there's really no visibility on what comes next here. Mm, yeah, yeah, and that is interesting. But he also says in the long term. America's going to be fine and and buy the S&P 500, keep buying the S&P 500 because over the long run, there are companies, that, that there are industries which are going to bounce back and they'll be, they'll be fine. So, yeah, while he was definitely a little bit less enthusiastic than he normally is about buying shares, he, he's definitely still the same old long term, hold it forever, it's all going to be fine in the end, investor. He, this, is, this is a blip in his, in his world rather than a... Catastrophe. Which I think, which I think we would largely agree with. But I think a lot of investors right now are sort of thinking, what's Warren, what's Warren doing with his money? I mean, he's got he's sitting on a lot of cash here. I know the fund lost uh, a lot of money uh, in the last quarter. I think it was something like fifty four billion uh, investment loss, which is huge um, for him for Berkshire Hathaway. Um, but he's he's sitting on a lot of cash. I mean, it's something like one hundred and thirty odd billion, um, and everyone would expect him to be deploying that as he did during the financial crisis. But he's not doing anything. I think this is what has surprised people a little bit. Mm, yeah yeah and I suppose it is difficult because this is a different sort of issue to the financial crisis an issue which has come from a pandemic and is rippling out across multiple markets as we've discussed in other podcasts it, and it's it's hard to know where that ripple effect is going to stop and when it will start reversing and where it will start reversing so picking sectors or companies is is extremely difficult at this point because we don't know we don't know what's going to happen next week we let alone in 5 years 10 years time for for all of these companies and and whether or not we're going to have a summer again in terms of being able to go to the pub being able to go on holiday and there are big sectors that are really really dependent on on our behavior in the next few weeks and the next few months which means there are more sectors that are going to be dependent on how we behave and it's it's difficult. It, it feels like this is a real turning point for a lot of industries. And Warren Buffett, who does tend to take big stakes in companies, he doesn't just track the market, even though he does say that that's, that's the best thing to do. And it is often the best thing to do for a lot of people. Not a lot of people have the amount of money that Warren Buffett has to invest. But he takes stakes in, in companies and in sectors. And it's hard to to guess which ones are the the right ones to do right now because it's also so uncertain still yeah definitely not airlines i think he's very worried about what what sort of capacity is going to be required in the airline industry in the future and whether you know they'll need to buy lots of new planes i think we actually saw some news from ig this morning that they're deferring a new plane order um which uh, which kind of supports that buffett view um hey, what, he, what he's actually saying is we're not buying anything because we can't see anything attractive to do so you know he's he's ready um but but actually at the moment he seems to be taking a safety first approach uh i think he says our position will be to stay a Fort Knox. And yeah, that, that seems to be the opposite of what a lot, a lot of other people are doing. I think a lot of people are looking at, at Warren Buffett and thinking, excellent, he's going to tell us he's, he's, going to, he's going to pounce. So that would justify what we're doing in the market, which has been jumping around like nobody's business. Mm, which, I mean, when we've said this before, we'll say again, is, it's silly. It, I mean, we've said that, yes, sell-offs can provide opportunities. And yeah, they, they do provide opportunities. And we are going to discuss with Mary in a in a few minutes about how how not being invested during these turbulent times can mean you're losing out on a lot of of the market's best days. But 
for someone like Warren Buffett and for seeing what's happening in the market, these people sort of leaping into into industries, into companies, in, into the market as a whole on a little bit of good news. For example, the the uh, the Gilead drug. Or, We're going to hear about that as well in a minute, aren't we? Nalushi wrote about that this week. Yeah, yeah. Nalushi's been looking a lot at this sort of jumping on the bandwagon situation, which is, yeah, it, it's a bit terrifying. And I mean, the market was rising on a day that the, that the US reported its worst economic data since the Second World War. I mean, that's extraordinary. Mm. And... So, yeah, I can completely see why Warren Buffett is being a little bit hesitant and why the markets may, may now be thinking, ooh, why is Warren Buffett being hesitant? I'm not being hesitant. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it is an interesting time. It's it's a, it's something we sort of alluded to in the intro there that you know there, there's a lot of sort of behavioural finance aspects to what's going on in the broader markets and I think Warren Warren Buffett sort of you know often lends some wisdom to to help you kind of understand what sort of behaviours are actually making markets move at the moment. I mean, there's one thing he said that I, that I was really struck by. He said with stocks people bring the attitude to them too often that because they are liquid and quoted minute by minute that it's important that you develop an opinion on them minute by minute and he says that's a rather foolish thing to do. The nature of the market makes it behave in the way it does it's, it's just this constant thing and people feel forced to act um, and actually that's something we're going to be talking to Algie Hall about later how we can remove some of those those aspects of uh, of kind of cognitive biases from the whole process I think I think that's a really fascinating side of things yeah it is and I think a lot of the people sort of build their opinions based on, co- on companies a lot of people build their opinions based on really really deep research but a lot of what moves the market is sentiment and and behavior and the human human psyche which is impossible to to get your head around all the time so yeah that's that's what we'll be discussing more with Mary and Lucy in the rest of this podcast right well on that note let's uh, let's hear from them Broadly speaking, we probably like to believe that we're rational decision makers. But as you say, um, decisions are often dominated by emotion. And one of the most prevalent mistakes you can make at the moment is falling into the trap of loss aversion bias. Thanks for joining us, Mary. Okay, so explain why that loss aversion bias that you were just talking about then can negatively impact your returns. Well, if you panic sell, then you risk missing out when the markets turn. Um, And it's better to stay in invested because it's pretty much impossible to time the markets and you'll be competing with institutional investors and people who have access to a lot more information than you. The biggest days of positive returns can happen at the bottom of of bear markets um, so you don't want to miss that and Fidelity crunched some numbers over what would happen if you invested $10,000 in the S&P 500 between 1980 to 2018. Um, and if you're fully invested every day, your end investment amount would be $708,000. Um, but by missing the best five trading days, your return falls 35% to $458,000. Um, so this shows that it's best to stay invested and not miss out on, on those best days. Yeah, that's, I mean, they're extraordinary numbers. A 35% lower just because you panicked. I mean, that is, that's a, definitely a, a reason not to panic. But obviously, 1980 to 2018, there were plenty of times to panic in that time. I mean, obviously, that will have gone through the dot-com boom and bust and the 2008 financial crisis and what we're going through now. And obviously, those kind of times do induce panic among investors. How can investors try and avoid that panic? Yeah, I think it sort of comes down to doing your research and remembering why you invested in a company in the first place. Like, we're... 
we're investors, not traders. Um, so we should believe in the long term prospects. But turning that on its head, if you've made a mistake with an investment, you should not hang on to it, just waiting for the price to recover. If the fundamentals have changed, the like entire industries might change as we emerge from this pandemic. So so you should reevaluate everything you're holding and make sure that it's that it's still a good investment. I think Warren Buffett selling airlines is, is a good example of being able to admit you've made a mistake when you have. Hanging on for too long, that's a whole different kind of bias, isn't it? It's that like ha- making sure you change your mind if it's if it's the right thing to do. But that, that can be quite hard to do as well. Yeah, I guess it, it is different, but it's still sort of not admitting your mistakes is still the, the loss aversion point. Um, but it leads into anchoring bias, which is another one which is written about quite a lot where people base investment decisions on previous prices. So, for example, if you bought a share at 100p and it's now at 80p, you're thinking to yourself, oh, I should hang on to it longer because at 100p it was it was worth buying. So now at 80p it must be worth buying. Yeah, that type of thing. Or, or if, you're, yeah, if you're looking at stuff to buy that's fallen, you think, oh, it's fallen so much it's got to pick up. Also, it's quite interesting. People might, just looking at indexes, people might think that now is a good time to buy the S&P 500. Um, is it still significantly below its February highs? But if you dig into that, current valuations are are really high at the moment with a forward price earnings ratio above 21, which is the highest level since December 2001 um, during the final stages of the dot-com bubble. It's fascinating at the moment what's happening with the markets, how they're climbing, even at the same time that we're getting the worst economics data out of the US for decades. I mean what are people yeah. imagining is going to happen when lockdown lifts and when and when things start to get back to some sort of normality? Sort of chasing trends where you risk buying high and selling low. Um, there's, there's some quite interesting research in, in 2018 where 39% of all new money committed to mutual funds went into the 10 best performing funds of the previous year. Really? So people were chasing high performing that's uh, yeah, that is very interesting, and it kind of sort of feeds that that bubble, doesn't it? Like the tech sector, for example, at the moment is a prime example of that. So the tech sector is being seen as a, as a relatively resilient sector during um, during coronavirus, but actually, as the shares keep climbing, I mean, Microsoft is up in the last six months, even though we've had a, an enormous market sell-off in that time. Yeah. I mean, and then Microsoft then drives the S&P higher because it's such a large constituent. I mean, tech in general is such a large constituent of the, of the S&P. It all, yeah, it's, uh, it's back to that, that narrative feeding performance, feeding narrative thing. There was a really, did you see uh, Chris Dillow's piece in the magazine last week? I thought it was, a, a, it made some fascinating points about ignoring base rate probabilities. What's that? So it's based on Bayes' theorem, which is about how, people make mistakes because they ignore base rate probabilities of things happening. So when stock picking, investors tend to focus on the individual company rather than also considering what is the chance that this type of stock will beat the market. Or it can leave people over-optimistic about the prospect for mergers or IPOs because they ignore the fact that um, many aren't successful. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of these theories and how they relate to investor behaviour is it's fascinating because... Um, because people try so hard to to pick their stocks based on what what they they believe and what they know, but actually, when it comes down to it, so there's so like so many other behaviours and human hum, the human psyche at work. It's uh, it's extremely yeah. difficult to predict what's coming next, which feeds back into that final point about 
timing the market and and betting on where the bottom's going to come and like like you've mentioned before that there's no way of doing it there's absolutely no way that anyone could predict which day the bottom of the market's going to be hit so so how do you as an investor manage that that difficulty well um if you've got spare money to invest drip feeding your money into the market can work quite well because you can benefit from paying cost averaging what's that just explain that briefly it's where you put in a fixed amount each month and you end up buying more when the prices are lower. So let's say you decide to invest £1,000 per month. If the share price is £5 when you start, you'll get 200 shares. And then if the share price has dropped to £4 the following month, you'll get 250 shares for that £1,000. Um, so it's a good discipline and it forces you to buy when markets are going down. So, so then dripping that money in regularly and getting into that habit is uh, it can help you be fully invested when the when the bottom of the market is eventually hit and obviously we don't we don't know when that's going to be and benefit from the full rise when when it finally comes um, and I think generally people would say monthly would be a reasonable time frame to to for those installments um, there's another technique that that you could consider which is value averaging which is slightly more nuanced. So with this approach, you set a target growth rate for your portfolio every month and then adjust next month's contribution according to the relative gain or shortfall made on the original value. Okay. Um, so that sounds like it requires slightly more work. Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, it's, it's good because you buy more stocks when they're cheaper because if it's gone down, you're adding more to make up to your target amount. But it's bad because it is it is more work. And also, if markets continue to rise, you might miss out on gains because you're not adding as much. That's great. Thanks very much, Mary. Really good to talk to you. And with the idea of jumping on bandwagons in mind, Nalushi has spent a lot of time over the last few weeks looking at the dangers of doing this and the dangers of herd mentality. Hi, Nalushi. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. So, what what is this opportunistic investing? theme that you've been looking at why is it can it be such a problem for investors especially at a time like this basically what herd investing comes down to is this idea that you kind of copy what everybody else is doing um, it particularly emerges at times of uncertainty because it can be difficult to know what to do the markets are quite volatile there's not much visibility on where things are going um, that's obviously heightened when you kind of throw a global pandemic into the mix it it sort of comes down to maybe you don't quite trust your own analysis or you're just not sure where's a good place to put your money right now. So you look around you, you see what other investors are doing, what they're buying into, and you gravitate towards those kind of similar stocks. And the danger here is it's the type of behavior that can lead to a bubble. In the most extreme form, you kind of think back to the dot-com bubble of the 90s and the early 2000s. But if you kind of dial it back, um, you know, to a less extreme level, it can lead to market rallies that aren't really based on solid ground and overstretched valuations. So what drives people to kind of jump on the bandwagon? It tends to be the fear of missing out. Obviously, hindsight is a wonderful thing and everyone kind of looks back and think, I wish I'd bought into Apple when they released the first iPhone. And it's that kind of fear of missing out on what could be the next big thing, the next big trend. And in a time like this, COVID-19 is throwing out these new trends because we're thinking that it's going to cause a fundamental shift in people's behavior, or it's also cementing companies' positions at the top. So when investors are kind of scrambling around looking for something to hold on to, 
you look into these stocks that are taking off at you know a time of when everything else is quite suppressed and there's a danger you could get into trouble you know you're joining a rally that could have potentially already happened in which case you'd just be cannibalizing your returns or you're just stretching out those already crazy valuations even further so i think a prime example of this and one that i actually love the example of it because it's so ridiculous is zoom i mean the amount of people who leapt on zoom right a couple of weeks ago and also the chinese company which has the ticker zoom and everyone was just buying that even though it's not it's not zoom it's not the us company zoom it's just it's just a chinese company which has the same ticker and that i mean that really is a prime example of people not wanting to miss out on a on a trend Suggests to me that they're not just not wanting to miss out, but they're not doing an ounce of research before they buy anything. I know, it's just like Zoom on the brain. Yeah. Zoom ticket, jump yeah. on Zoom. It's just crazy. Buy it as quickly as I can. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a bit worrying. And they even had to pause trading on the Chinese company because... Just in a few days, that stock went up from $3 to $21. It's a stock that basically been seeing no love for a long time. And suddenly there's this massive jump. So the SEC was sort of, something's going on here. We better take a look. <laughs> but then the actual Zoom, the one that everyone's using for video conferencing, it's now worth, I mean, it's worth such a huge amount. And, and yeah, OK, it's a trend at the moment. We're using this video conferencing for everything right now because we have to but will it continue to the same extent when things eventually go back to normal i mean the longer we're in lockdown for the more i think i never want to be on another zoom call ever again we we published a graph in the magazine showing zoom's market capitalization versus four of the largest us airlines and it was bigger zoom is now bigger than these you know long established industries uh that have that have really sort of become very unpopular as, uh, as warren buffett cemented uh, this week with his sale of, of airlines um, i mean zoom is interesting but you know and people are video conferencing more but the question then is what they've got a lot of competition you know there is google there is microsoft in this market as well and there's a lot of concerns about Zoom itself. We had a, a missive go around from the company today telling us not to use Zoom if we can avoid it on security concerns. So, so you know, these things tend to, do these things get ignored uh, by by speculators during these uh, these kind of opportunistic um, stock market rallies? It it does seem like it's getting ignored right now. I mean, Zoom was I think around sixty nine dollars at the beginning of the year. Its share price is now something like one hundred and forty five dollars. So it's just been going up in this crazy fashion. But if you look at the short sellers, they kind of give a good indication. So at the same time as the Zoom was going up, the short interest was going up as well. And they kind of backed off maybe around mid-March, kind of reconsidering what was going on. But that short interest is ticking up again, because what they're identifying is what, what you've mentioned, kind of these security privacy concerns that are hanging around. And these type of concerns, they tend to get brushed over. I mean, look at Facebook, the Cambridge Analytica scandal didn't really damage it. Facebook stock has kept going up. But the difference with Zoom is it's not kind of social consumers that it relies on. It's businesses and businesses are much more security conscious. And when you look at what's been going on with Zoom, there's things like it's been handing out user data to Facebook. Um, Encryption keys have, have apparently been passing through servers in China, which is kind of a big red flag, especially for US companies. Um, You've got Zoom bombing where people can just come in and enter a meeting. And it's kind of basic kind of marketing as well. It it seems to me like they're quite an immature company in some ways, that they weren't really ready for the spotlight. Well, that is a really interesting comparison with what happened with Facebook, because obviously the Cambridge Analytica stuff with Facebook, it happened 15 years into Facebook's run. Like Facebook is is ingrained in in our behaviour already. Zoom is a very new thing in our behaviour. And 
the, it's not going to be hard for us to ditch Zoom in the same way that it would have been hard for people to ditch Facebook if they were genuinely worried about security things. Like, if if we don't want to use Zoom, we're not going to use Zoom. There are other options as well, and and there aren't really any other options with the Facebook thing. So while it's a an interesting comparison, it's it's like it's in a different position. Like you say, it's an immature company. It's a relatively new company. It's true. There was a really great quote. I think was something like they've experienced two years worth of news cycles in just a couple of months and the thing with them is they were promising at the beginning we've got end-to-end encryption now that's the most secure form of encryption you can have it means that basically between the two people that are conversing that data is secure even zoom can't access that data but it turns out they didn't really mean end-to-end encryption they meant something else it was like a basic error even the number of users they have it was blasted across the headlines Zoom has gone from 10 million users from the end of December to 300 million users. But they didn't actually mean users. They meant participants. They're two very different things. So a user is an individual. But if a user logs on to Zoom, say, five times, they're counted as five participants. So 300 million participants is very different to 300 million users. And we still don't actually know how many users Zoom has. It's it's interesting. You mentioned in your piece, um, Nilushi, uh, that even analysts are, are split on on the prospects with this company, and that's really interesting too. You know, if if analysts can't make up their mind, then then how the, how is anyone else expected to? Um, you know, these guys are looking at these stocks day in day out. They're doing the research that we've, we've suggested other people aren't doing, and and perhaps still getting sucked into the to the bubble. It's true because at the end of the day, it all relies on a company making money. And it seems like Zoom's boost right now is probably coming from social users who are logging on. You know, they're, they're catching up with Granny or, you know, having dinner over Zoom. But they're using the free version of Zoom. You can have, I think it's something like up to 100 participants. As long as the meeting's under 40 minutes, you use it for free. But even now, if it's I'm... over 40 minutes, you just re log back on again. And we've had loads of quizzes with my friends where we've gone over our 40 minutes and then we just. Precisely. Go back but on. think about it. Are you likely to upgrade to a subscription? Oh, no way. Probably yeah. not. And when this crisis is over, you're probably going to use Zoom a lot less. So, what the analysts are looking at is can they actually monetize? these users they've managed to attract? And the answer is probably not, because there's not much incentive to upgrade. And you've got Facebook coming along with messenger rooms. You've already got, if you've already got a Facebook account, are you going to really kind of switch to Zoom using Zoom? Probably not. So they're going to kind of pressure them on that side. And then on the enterprise side, you've got kind of Microsoft is upping its presence in this game as well. So, I mean, you can see why there's so much confusion here. Mm, yeah, I mean, it is a really valuable lesson in not jumping on the bandwagon and looking beyond what the, he- the headlines are. But obviously, tech and video conferencing and Zoom is not the only place that it's happening at the moment. And the pharmaceutical sector is another prime example of, of people getting caught, caught up with the headlines and, and demand and then actually not really looking at the bigger picture. Absolutely. I mean, you've, you've probably been living under a rock if you haven't heard about Gilead and what's going on there. I mean, it, it's the antiviral called remdesivir that's capturing all the attention right now. And it's kind of this breathless news cycle. And it's become the tail that's kind of wagging the S&P 500. But both of them, they're kind of going up on any kind of little tidbit of good news and down on any sort of hint of bad news. And it, it's quite crazy how kind of those two things are interacting right now. You kind of wonder, okay, what's all the hype? Because there are about, I think, 200 treatments that are under consideration that could potentially, you know, treat COVID-19 right now. What is it about Gilead that's standing out? And the point is they've kind of got this first mover advantage right now because remdesivir is um, 
in late stage clinical trials right now, whereas the other ones are kind of much earlier along in the timeline. So this is the one that's got out of the gate and could potentially reach commercialization first. So that's why everyone's kind of latching onto it right now. There's kind of two things. So Gilead's not like kind of a, a novice that's kind of just, you know, sprung up into people's mind. It's a big US pharma company that's been hanging around for a while. But if you look at its share price last year, it was just kind of tracking sideways, which means people weren't really paying much attention to it. It's only this year that it's really kind of taken off in this crazy way, which to me kind of speaks it's an investment that's very much of the moment rather than something that's kind of more diversified, like a GSK or an AstraZeneca, whose share prices were kind of gently trending upwards across last year and have also been benefiting this year as well. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got a bit of a problem with both GSK and AstraZeneca, but you're right, It's the Gilead story is is a very much a now story. But Gilead, like you say, it's a big US company. It's not one of these tiddlers on AIM, which has suddenly decided that it's an infectious disease company and is putting all its money in there, which I actually think is really problematic. If they are putting all their eggs in the COVID-19 basket right now, what are they going to do next year when, when this or whenever this eventually blows over? But yeah, there, I mean, there are so many pharmaceutical companies which have a huge array of drugs. We've still got other diseases Coronavirus isn't the only one that's happening right now. And actually, in the meantime, the companies which are continuing to plow their money into cancer treatments and, and things like that, they, they are equally interesting, if not potentially more interesting than what Gilead is doing. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's quite one-dimensional just to be looking at Gilead if you're looking at the pharmaceutical industry. The other thing that's come up with Gilead is kind of what we were mentioning with Zoom as well, because at the end of the day, you need to be making money off of this product. It's If remdesivir works and it comes out as a treatment for COVID-19, that's great. But what investors care about is, are they going to make any profit off of this thing? I mean, probably not. If remdesivir works, Gilead's going to have to give it away at cost price because otherwise it's going to be absolutely hated by everyone. I mean, can you imagine a company which finds a cure for coronavirus and doesn't give it away to everyone? What does it do? I mean, it's not a cure, is it? It's not, it's not a, a vaccine. It reduces the length of treatment once you've become infected with COVID-19 from what is it, 15 to 10 days. Yeah. So I don't, I struggle to see how this is a game changer to the extent that it drives the S&P 500 upwards out of this massive economic hole we find ourselves in. That's, that's the bit I don't get. It's Am I wrong clutching... about, about this drug? No, it is such a clutching at straws story. It's quite, it's quite insane, the point we've gotten to now. It's because yeah. we're just looking for any way we can come out of this lockdown. But you're right. Ultimately, a vaccine is the only way that we get back to normality. And remdesivir isn't that. Yeah, it's not going to get the economy back on track and get us out of this hole. And, and yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary that the S&P 500 is rising at a time when the economic data is this bad, based purely, or I mean, almost purely on a, on a drug that isn't actually that exciting. <laughs> I mean, I love the term armchair epidemiologist because that just seems to be what all the market watchers are. And suddenly they're experts in clinical trial data. And, you know, they're they're just moving the market on things fundamentally that they don't understand. I mean, it's this kind of drip, drip approach of of news and data that's coming out. You need to look at the end point, not where we are right now. What should we be learning from this sort of behaviour, Nilushi? What what do you think investors should be doing instead? So... I mentioned it in my um, piece. There's the famous Warren Buffett quote, be fearful when others are greedy. So when something looks too good to be true, it probably is. So when these stocks are rocketing up, especially at a time like this, think twice or maybe even three times before jumping on board that bandwagon. Because 
you know, when the price is high and you're jumping on there, you're most probably going to cannibalize any return that you get from that investment. It's probably, even if it's something good, it's going to probably go up a tiny little bit more. So unless you have a high appetite for risk and you're just looking to kind of make an opportunistic short-term trade, I always think it's best to look for high-quality companies that have a long-term growth story that are going to kind of keep going beyond this crisis. Back to Buffett. It's always back to Buffett. I love your concluding line, Yelushi. Elsa and Warren leading us out of the crisis. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Frozen frozen and Warren Buffett, what, what more could you want? Thanks very much, Nalushi. That was a really interesting conversation. Right, now I'm going to speak to Algie Hall about a new innovation at the Investors Chronicle, the Ideas Farm. How are you doing, Algie? Yeah, good, thanks, John. Excellent. So talk through the Ideas Farm. What What is this and how has it come about? What are, what are we trying to do here? Well, um, it's it's something that we've been actually for about 12 months using uh, internally. It, um, it's just an interesting way of really combing through the market to look for signals um, which may suggest a stock is worth looking at in our tips and ideas section. Um, and the, the, the point behind this is that we come out with a lot of investment ideas for readers every week um, and especially over the course of a year. And um, really, what we want to be channeling our efforts in the best possible way. And there are lots of indicators out there, which just are, you know, very helpful in um, signposting that their stock may be of interest. So what sort of signals are we looking for? What is it that will prompt us to go, do you know what, we're going to have a look at that company in much more detail? Well, um, in, in the ideas, for, I, I should stress still, yeah, you know, relying on the writers to come up with them. Um, ideas outside of this more process-driven uh, uh, way of looking at things. But um, we're looking at things like short interest, so companies which um, are being heavily shorted and that, or there have been big increases in short interest. They're, you know, they're interested to sell ideas because, um, you know, oft, often the short sellers are very, you know, right. They're amazing researchers a lot, of, um, and, you know, they're working off a lot of data, which is... Um, you know, some of it's bespoke to them. It can be a really good, um, you know, nod to a company that's um, having issues. On a more positive, we're looking towards um, broker upgrades. Forecasts are notoriously um, wrong a lot of the time. However, um, where they can add real value if you, in uh, finding a trend of either positive or negative surprises, because those trends often persist. So we're looking at companies which have had um, recent upgrades and looking and then of, you know, lifting the bonnet and seeing whether the factors behind, um, you know, those upgrades are likely to persist, whether there's a really positive story um, developing. And obviously, it can sometimes be something else, it can be a one-off or it can be something technical. We're looking at um, 52-week highs and lows as well. This is a kind of momentum indicator you can regard it as generally if a company's hitting a new high, something's going well. And if it's hitting a new low, something's going badly. So it's, um, I mean, which is fairly obvious, I suppose. But um, momentum's something which um, is a real force in markets. So often if there is a positive story behind that price movement, it's a story that um, is going to persist into the future. We touched on momentum when we were talking to Nilushi earlier. We were talking about uh, Zoom Technologies, the video conferencing company, which has obviously seen its share price take off during the uh, the COVID crisis. And, you know, I think momentum is really interesting, potentially sometimes as an indicator of a bubble of, of mania. And that's something Nilushi concluded as well. So, so I guess what we all, we're not just going to present the numbers and say, hey, look, here's a great momentum story. I guess what what we then do with that is the interesting thing here. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, that, that's the thing. These indicators, they're, they're just kind of signposts, like this may be of interest. And then it's only by doing the hard work, the actual research, that you actually find out whether you're seeing something which is of real value. And also, exactly, as you say, you can have a stock shooting up and it, you know, it can, um, you know, it, it can look amazing in terms of, um, you know, this is going places, but it could be, a, you know, a complete fiction, um, you know, what that momentum is built on, in which case it's actually very dangerous because it's, as you say, it could be a bubble which is going to burst at some point. And normally you're best off staying with an investor. The same is sort of true of shorts as well. I mean, you say that, you know, these, these uh, short sellers, hedge funds, those sort of guys, they are very good researchers and they get a lot right, but they do get stuff wrong as well. So again, you know, I, we, we will not be blindly following the shorts list, but doing our own analysis to see whether they're right or wrong. It's all, it's all about a way in. I mean, and also in terms of explaining them, as I have done just now, I've explained the kind of, you know, the consensus view on, you know, what, what this data uh, kind of is generally interpreted as. So, yeah, no, you can get short squeezes in stocks, which can um, um, be phenomenal for the share price. Um, so, but I say it's like in investigating, you know, why why someone would be short of a company. I mean, I, I think um, one uh, tip that we've um, we, we had, which springs to mind, which been really hit by um, what's happened recently was Cineworld, which um, shorts and downgrades actually um, made us look, look at closely last year. And um, we concluded that it looked like it was in a really bad state because, I mean, it's just, it has so much debt, that company, and it's made a lot of acquisitions in a very short space of time at a point where it seems like cinema attendance is waning. And this is pre-COVID. Um, and that was in terms of a, a sell tip and the timing of it. The you know the shares have fallen very heavily since then. So um, you know, so that's so that's where an example of where that kind of analysis, um, you know, or those, those indicators are stood up by analysis. And there is there's one more category. So what you've done this week um, in the first week that we've run it is publish some of the tables that that uh, that we look at in abridged form. These are very long tables that we have on our big notice board when we're in our office or virtually on our Slack channel. Um, there's one other category you've, you've highlighted this, this week, which was also the subject of your cover feature last week, Follow the Leader, which is uh, Fund Manager's Best Ideas. Talk us through that. I'm, I'm, loving, the, I'm loving the musical accompaniment, by the way, Algie. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of saxophone practice going on here. <laughs> um, the other end of the house, but it's still audible. It's the saxophone. <laughs> There's quite a lot of evidence that fund managers, even though on average they can't outperform the market with their funds, and there's a lot of detail in the feature about this, they actually do outperform with their top holdings. And this is kind of like, this isn't just skilled managers, but uh, I mean, just to, this isn't just um, fund managers who have been performing well. This is, um, there's evidence that this happens across the board. So um, where, where managers have a really, um, you know, a really strong investment view, which shows up as, top holdings in their portfolios, there is this evidence that suggests these are actually good ideas, even if their funds themselves aren't that good, which is like, it seems bizarre. But there are lots of, um, you know, reasons you can point to for why you should have, you know, what, what, why, why this may happen. Anyway, what we're looking at is um, we're looking at uh, some of the um, top performing fund managers and what their best ideas are. And um, really, again, this is just like, you know, if it, um, the idea being if, a share has made it into into a top spot in a top manager's um, portfolio. 
it should have been very well investigated to begin with. There should be an investment case there. So, it's, you know, it's worth us having a look. And um, again, though, you know, you think of Neil Woodford, not every um, you know, holding by a, you know, supposed top fund manager is going to be actually that enticing. And then there's, and when I've um, been coming up with these lists or, you know, crunching the data in order to come up with these lists, you get some names in those lists, which, you know, you think, oh, God, you know, I, I don't like the look of that. So it's definitely, you know, it's, it, all of this is, is it's useful stuff, but it's not an end in itself by any means. I was going to say, I'm, I'm looking at that list and I'm seeing Cineworld quite high up the top. So it's on the shorts list and the best ideas list. Yeah, no, no, exactly. It's a company we really don't like. And um, yeah, that's, um, and, and it's done it's done terribly. Unless, unless they bought it on, you know, mid-March. Mm, mm. In which case, very well. I guess, I guess there's a, the whole point of doing this though. I mean, we could have just carried on, you know, looking at the market, plucking ideas out here, there. Oh, that looks okay. Let's 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 have a go at that one. Why are we doing this? There is a reason for doing this, uh, and that ties in with what we've been talking about in terms of what Warren Buffett's approach is and his philosophy and some of the mistakes investors make. Talk us through the rationale for doing this. Well, I mean, I, I suppose I suppose there, you know, there, there are actually several things, and I, I, I think this year we're going to change um, the tips and ideas section to reflect our thinking but um, i mean improving the chances of highlighting really interesting situations by just being more systematic in the way we go through the market and generate ideas i think there's also um an element of wanting to have a more open relationship with our readers so as well because you know we we had a lot of tip ideas a lot of recommendations and um i you know i, I write a um, review of how we've done during the year in the tip section every um once a year and i try and be as honest as possible in saying you know we're not um uh we're not oracles we're not you know we don't have a crystal ball these are opinions and judgments and um at the end of the day you know it's readers who will decide whether they think um the arguments in favor or against the stock are interesting and we can you know we can be wrong we often are wrong with them with what we think and um they're huge they're huge amount of unpredictable factors which work on share prices. I, I, I'm quite interested interested in the idea of removing bias from investment as well. And this this has a it has a mechanism that does that too. The, 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 the systematic nature of it means that, that that it's taking as much bias out of this process as we possibly can. And that's a really hard thing to do. Yes. Yeah. No. I mean, we um, we've got actually um, there are other things which we've been doing behind the scenes in terms of um, trying to break down the judgments we're making on stocks, which I, I think are more significant in that process of trying to remove bias. And we'll introduce that to the magazine as well um, during this year. But um, I mean, obviously, if, you, if, if, if you're starting out from a place which is more systematic and process driven, you're less um, prone to just uh, falling back on kind of confirmation bias and favourites, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a less lazy way of going about um, generating um, ideas and you'll know if you know and readers will know or listeners should know if, if they um have read much about behavioral finance our brains are always looking for the lazy option it's just it's an it, it's not to do with being a lazy person your brain naturally wants to go the lazy route which is you know which is actually the intelligent route most of the time which <laughs> which is what we have to as investors though we have to try and overcome it and um you know be more rational where we can so building systems, uh, putting systems in place is one way to um, to do that. 
Thank you very much, Algie. I mean, it's, it's a really fantastic initiative. I know you've put an enormous amount of work into this. Uh, thank you. So now I'm going to speak to Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? I'm very good, thanks, John. How are you? I'm not too bad. Not too bad, thank you. Did you uh, tune in to the Berkshire Hathaway AGM this week? I did not. Oh, no? You didn't catch all six hours of it? It's just not something I wanted to do, quite frankly, watching a video stream for six hours. No, absolutely not. Do you, do you have any interest in, in what Warren Buffett's up to, though, more generally? Less so than I, than I, than I used to. I, you know, I think he's always quite interesting. Uh, you know, I like to read, read his letter. I think his, his annual shareholders' letters very worthwhile reading. Um, in terms of investment, what he's doing investment-wise, not going to be a popular thing to say, but less and less these days. I, I find, you know, I look at what he owns, the kind of businesses, what he owns. I look at the way that he invests, and I just think, well, a lot of people can't really do what he does. And I look at, you know, I look at the stuff that, that he, you know, the, his portfolio, and I think, well, I actually don't want to own a lot of the stuff that he owns. And I think for him, it works really well because, so this, is, this is one of the key points about Warren Buffett, which is which I think he's sort of more, should we say, makes him less less relevant to a private investor than perhaps people think he is, because he owns he owns companies outright, and his investment returns come from collecting all the earnings, all the profit of these businesses that he owns. Yeah, he's got a portfolio of shares as well, but. If you look at what's driving the returns of Berkshire Hathaway, it is largely the profits and the cash flows of owning those businesses outright. So in many ways, Buffett is like is a dividend investor. You know, he, he he likes these flows of income, and his experience as an investor is a lot different from you and I and everybody else who buy shares on the stock exchange. And let me give you a really good, just a really simple example. So let's say, let's say, for example, you know, we buy, we buy a share for a pound and it's got 10 pence of earnings and it doesn't pay a dividend and we own it for a year and the share price is still a pound and we've had no dividend. As a shareholder, we, our total return on that is zero. If Warren Buffett has exactly the same business, and owns that outright, he collects that 10p of earnings on that £1 price. So he gets a 10% return. So he, he, doesn't have, he doesn't have that experience of the up and downs of the share price, and he, but he collects all the earnings. Now, the key point about this is that over the long haul, what is, I think, one of the key determinants of anybody's long-term investment performance is how they ride out the bad times. And Warren Buffett, his approach where he, and his, his, the way he set up to, to basically get all the, um, get all the earnings of companies he owns outright, he doesn't participate as much in the ups and downs of the stock market. And therefore his returns are a lot less volatile. So in a bull, in a bull market, Buffett will underperform because what tends to happen is that share prices rise faster than profit. But in a bear market, he's still collecting those earnings and share prices are going down. So his returns massively outperform in a bear market. And, le- and, and the other thing as well is unless he sees a permanent 
loss in value of these businesses. He doesn't have to write the value down. And this is something that's very important, to, you know, I think, to understand when people are comparing the investment performance of, of Warren Buffett against, say, the S&P 500. It makes a massive difference. One of the things that many people did focus on this week was that he, he made a bad bet on airlines and sold them. And, you know, perhaps that supports your view that, you know, his, his decision making as an investor in companies is perhaps not what it used to be. I really don't understand why, why you would have bought airlines at any point recently. No, I mean, I mean, neither, me neither. I mean, he, whether he bought them or whether the two guys he's got running, running uh, money for him bought them, I, I, don't, I don't know. But I, I find it very strange that, you know, going back to his shareholder letters again, you know, for years and years and years, periodically he has cautioned against investing in airlines and then you look at you know you look at his main operating business which is you know Berkshire Hathaway insurance and things like he's got a big investment in railroads and big investments in utilities um you know quite capital intensive industries now he's quite happy to deploy capital and earn you know high maybe six seven eight percent return on you know on new locomotives or on you know, wind farms or solar farms because he collects it all. And also, you know, I think there's also something to the argument that he he benefits from, you know, using other people's money, you know, using that float in his insurance company. So the premiums that come in, you know, I think the insurance flow is, what, $130 billion plus. So mm. Yeah, he seems quite reluctant to spend it at the moment, though. I mean, that's one thing that came out of the meeting. He, he said there's not a lot of attractive places to deploy that capital. Uh, <clears throat> although he has said that the private, the average private investor should carry on buying uh, the S&P 500, carry on buying uh, shares in America because, you know, America won't, won't lose in the end. Maybe. I mean, if you look at, you know, if you look at certainly the, uh, you know, the past, past century, even the past 10, 15 years, you know, having your money in American shares has, has definitely been a good thing to do. You know, the quality of business listed on the American stock exchange is far, far superior to what we have in this country. Um, there's so much choice um, in terms of global global leaders on the American stock market. And we just do not have that, that choice. I mean, this is this is something you've been looking at in your Alpha report this week. That the lack of choice, uh, the lack of quality. I think you put it in the UK. I mean, you're struggling with your UK quality portfolio at the moment. A lot of stuff you want to sell there. You know, I think invest, investing is hard, and I think investing in the UK has probably never been harder. In, you know, certainly in my 23 years plus of doing this, and I I look at it and I think, you know, what's what's been the key attraction for? For investing in the UK, a large chunk of it has been the big dividend yield in the FTSE 100, and they're disappearing. They're just they're just vanishing. You know, we've had BT this morning. You know, I, I thought BT would would cut its dividends probably by quite a lot. I didn't think it would it would it would suspend it. And I think I think there's a lot. You know, you look at the big yields in, in the FTSE 100, not you know also in the 250, and you know you just look and you think these these things at the very wor- very best can't grow. And then, you know, on a more likely scenario, they're just going to get hammered. And I know, you know, Terry Smith, you know, he's he's done the view, and he thinks for his for his type of criteria, he thinks there are fewer than you know a hundred investable companies across the world. 
And I know exactly where he's coming from, looking at looking at that criteria. And I think I think if you look in the UK, then clearly it's a it's a lot. The, the number is a lot lower than that. And, I'm, and what, what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about the kind of company that is very dependable. It is a you know they're they're leaders in their field. They do something that very very few of its competitors can do. They're resilient. So they can they can survive the ups and downs of the economy. They can grow and they're very profitable. Now there are some companies, there are some good companies on the stock exchange in the UK that do that, but they're incredibly expensive and it's it's very difficult. You know, you, you look around, you look around the market and you search for you know what you can buy at a reasonable price, not a cheap price, but a reasonable price. And there are a few there are a few things out there. I'm I'm kind of you know lukewarm on companies like Reckitt and and Unilever. I, you know I, I have this view whether it's right or not that I think that they will come up against competition from private labels. But at the moment they're probably going to do all right for a while in this current environment. And those companies you can buy their their shares at quite reasonable valuations. And you know I've talked about money supermarket couple of weeks ago on the podcast things like sage you can buy at quite reasonable valuations if you believe that we can get back to some kind of normality they, they don't they feel they don't feel like the kind of amazing businesses that 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 you know are world leaders that, that you see on the u.s market though yeah i mean things like spirex arco which is you know for me one of the Best businesses on the on the London Stock Exchange. You know, I'm I'm having to pay, you know, well over thirty times earnings for that. And and these businesses have held up held up very well because you know interest rates are very low and people want to people value a good night's sleep owning them. And I think that trend you've seen that trend in the last you've seen it for the last decade, but you've seen it have another leg up in the last six weeks, two months. One of the things you talk about, Phil, is the, the problems we've had, actually companies that looked like they were very good quality companies that because of the, the nature of the, the change that we're experiencing have now found themselves looking like not such quality businesses at all. Yeah, I mean, if you, know, if you take the view, I mean, I mean, let's look at, you know, look at what the airline companies are coming out of saying. And then you look, at, you look at the businesses that are exposed to, you know, travel, you know, like WH Smith that we you know, talk about talk about virtually every week, or I do. I have huge respect for that business in terms of how well it can do. But I think it's going to struggle for the next two or three years. I really do. And that's probably true of a lot of consumer-facing companies as well. I mean, my, my view is that we just, and the view of Warren Buffett, in fact, is that we just don't know what lies ahead. You know, anything could happen still um, to the economy, to the markets. Uh, it's, a, it's a very fraught time. Um, actually, I mean, th- there were a couple of businesses you've re- written about in your Alpha report this week um, that I wouldn't mind focusing on, Phil. They're both businesses that, are, you know, in good times have been amazing businesses um, that, that we both quite like, um, but, but which have, you know, exactly as you described, succumbed quite badly to what's, to what's happened uh, to the economy. One is ITV in the UK and one is Disney. Both, uh, both looking pretty in a, in a pretty horrible place at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I mean, ITV periodically looks in a bad place. Um, every time, every time there's a recession, the profits of this business get get hammered because it, it, despite the best efforts of the management team over the last 
10, 15 years, the, the broadcasting business is, you know, that earns virtually all its money from advertising revenue. And all the costs of the broadcasting business pretty much are fixed. Um, that means that they are the same regardless of, of revenue. When the economy is ticking along quite nicely, ITV just looks a great business. You know, it is fabulously profitable, generates loads of cash. To be fair, it's been very well managed, and it's got some good assets. Um, whether, whether you and I or anybody else likes watching stuff on ITV, the, the fact of the matter is, is that millions of people do. When, when we talk about media businesses, one of, one of the things that you know, comes back, we come back to all the time is content. And you know, ITV has got a lot of content. That it's that it's trying to monetize. I'm not. I'm not. You know. I don't know whether you've looked at the uh, the BritBox business. I took out. I took out. A, a, I was a bit disappointed with it. I thought. I thought it was a bit thin. Uh, hopefully that gets a bit better. But you know, there there are some good things going on that, that think you think can take it away from this advertising reliance. Well, you have the studios business as well. So, you know, the, it, making its own content, which obviously plays through its own channels and platforms, but can sell to other people as well. But but even that's struggling at the moment. COVID has had an effect on that as well. Yeah, I mean, cause, because people are not turning up to make the programmes because of things like social distancing. Yeah, and, you know, the, the bad thing about ITV is that, you know, it's not going to change. And this, this reliance on advertising, Plus the fact that, you know, it's up against things like, you know, organisations like the BBC, where, you know, the BBC doesn't have to fish for its supper, doesn't have to, you know, get out there and fight for its revenues. And therefore it knows exactly pretty much how much money it's got coming in. That's very difficult for ITV to go up against from time to time. What you would really like to see on a business like this is to develop some kind of Subscription, and I, you know, I remember reading an analyst report from many years ago, you know, probably 15 years ago, and it was it was a really good report about how ITV is real sort of left field, and it said, you know, ITV should just give up this advertising lark and turn itself into a subscription business, and I always that always sort of resonated with me. Maybe maybe it just can't do it. Maybe this isn't isn't space for it. But you know, until this advertising advertising reliance goes away, it's always going to be a killing field. Which is why you know you get a lot of people commentating in the good times saying, "I can't believe how cheap ITV is. Look at you know, look at the look at the profitability, look at the return, look at the margins, look at the cash flow." And then it's on a really cheap valuation. Well, it's on a cheap valuation because the worry is that one day you're going to get a recession and, and the earnings are going to get absolutely trashed. You know, in, in many ways, you know, it's, it's just a value trap, sadly. Because, I, 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 you know, I've got a lot of admiration for the way this business is run. Um, it's just operating with, you know, from time to time, incredibly challenging economics. And, you know, and that's what will put people off paying a high price for its shares. Big, big lesson in uh, investing in cyclical companies there. Um, there's another company you talk about, Walt Disney, um, as I've just mentioned, which on the face of it would appear to be less cyclical, but it's having a terrible time too. I mean, it has a lot more of it, of its own content, brands, intellectual property that it can license out, much broader revenue streams, but it's taking a hit too. What, I mean, what's happening at Walt Disney, which I think is in one of your portfolios. Yeah, yeah. 
What's really, really hurting it is is the fact that it's having to close its theme park. And we saw the we saw the second quarter results this week. They they were going until the end of March, so that, so there wasn't really much of an impact from COVID nineteen in there. And if you look at the, the segment of the theme parks and the experiences and, and that kind of thing, the revenue was down by ten percent. But the profits were down by nearly 60. And that was just, you know, a few weeks of closing closing the theme park across the world. So you know that the third quarter and the fourth quarter, which, you know, the spring and the summer months, which are the peak times for people that normally go and visit these, these theme parks, the profits are going to be horrible, absolutely horrible. And of course, there, you know, there have been other, other effects as well. That, you know, it has a, you know, a big media business. Um, even bigger because it bought the some assets, the, the sort of the, the media assets and the film assets of 21st Century Fox last year. Um, they're great assets, great content. And I think they will serve Disney very well over the long haul. But at the moment, if you look at things like their media business, you know, their cable TV business, TV channels business, and also got their own ESPN which is a big sporting franchise and there are no sporting events. So your advertising revenue, which is, you know, pretty significant, just disappears. It's spent a lot of money building up this portfolio uh, of, of, of brands, of, of content, of, of, of channels like uh, like ESPN, most recently Fox. I mean, I guess the problem is that it's, it's now got this huge big debt pile um, and, and no money coming in to service it. I think it'll be all right in that. I don't, you know, I don't worry about this company getting into big financial difficulties. You know, once once things turn around, it it will be fine. Um, I think what's encouraging um, is that it's it's um, strategy on streaming. Streaming is here to stay. I think you know the, the Disney Plus seems to have gone down really well. Seems to have a really good start. They have Hulu as well, and then they also have an ESPN streaming package, and they've been they've been bundling them together really well. Um, there's a bit of cannibalisation from the cable TV TV business. So whilst people go onto the streaming, they probably think, oh well, I don't need to take out a, a subscription for these for these TV channels if I'm going to stream them over the internet, and that's hurting profits at the moment. But we'll probably get to a point. Don't know when when that will level off. Yeah, when it's having to invest a lot of money in building up this streaming platform. It will, but I think and I think that's just the nature of the beast, John. You know, you have to when you are starting a business like this. It's not a free lunch. You're going to have to throw some money at it. But I think, and also, you know, it is a relatively late entrance into this market. But I think that one of the big advantages that it's got over the likes of Netflix, over the likes of Amazon. Is, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, the content, it owns its content, owns a large chunk of, well, virtually all its content. And therefore, there are huge synergies between the existing businesses and this, this streaming service. And of course, you know, you were telling me just before we came on that uh, the human household is actually actually sampling this as we speak. Yeah, which is why we're doing this uh, this interview on my telephone rather than on the uh, the Google Hangout via broadband because I bought Disney Plus for the girl's birthday and they've done nothing since for the last 48 hours. Um, but it is killing my broadband. Nothing works while they're watching it. It's, it's, it's awful. <laughs> but um, it really shows 
just just how deep the uh, the content they have in this thing is. They they are they are just transfixed by it. And this is not new content either, which I find quite interesting, particularly in the context of ITV, which is having to make lots of new stuff to, to kind of catch up. This is a library of old stuff that goes back decades and decades, and they will be in there for the next year if I don't actually turn it off for them. It's not, it is, you know, the back catalogue, you know, you look at, you know, the Disney films, the Pixar films, the Star Wars, the Marvel, you know, and then you've got, you know, bits of National Geographic, they can add Discovery to that. You know, there's new stuff coming all the time. Uh, it's very interesting as well. They 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 price this at a pretty attractive price. Um, I know the UK is what five ninety nine a month uh, or sixty quid a year. You know, the economics. You talk about the economics of this. Once this once this scales, you know, you've got to think that the, you know the start has been good and the price point is good. You know, once it gets to break even, a break even number of subscriptions. Each each additional, and I don't know what that is, but it's, I don't, I'm not sure it's that far. It's going to be that far away from it, you know, within the next 12 months. Once you get there, then virtually every new, new subscription on this is going to be pure profit. I think the only the only thing that sort of concerns me about it is how much profit does it take away from from the existing media business because um, because it, it is going to cannibalise cannibalize some of that but again you know there's probably some cost benefits as well the cost of distribution is going to be a lot cheaper because it's going to go over going to go over in internet networks rather than uh, i don't know cable or satellite yeah it feels like it feels like a better problem to have than the problem itv currently has and you're 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 staying put with this one sucking gritting your teeth and sucking up the pain i think you say yeah yeah we'll see um, I think there's going to be a lot, lot more pain to come with uh, the, the theme parks. Probably aren't going to open up for a bit. Their cruise line business isn't going to, isn't going to go for a bit. So I think the profits are still going to, still going to suffer. I think the Q3 profits in Disney are going to look horrible. But I think, uh, I think a lot, hopefully, a lot of that's in the, in the share price now. This is a this is a business that has you know decent recovery potential in it. I think there is a worry that it might have to raise some money, but um, it's a great American business and it is a world leader. It is the kind of thing that you can buy in America, uh, even if it's having a little little bit of a tough time at the moment. Says it all, really. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Phil. That's been absolutely fascinating. There's plenty more to read uh, that you've uh, you've written for us this week. There's loads more in the Alpha Report, and you've done a big uh, a magazine column uh, on uh, on, a, on a slightly different way of looking at stock picking. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's quite popular. I mean it's I mean uh, it's very similar to the you know the approach, the sort of Terry Smith approach, the sort of Nick Train Blue Whale type approach. All very successful. All very successful. I mean, yeah. So we have a bit of a deep. It's, it's sort of part educational, part sort of analysis. So yeah, it's, it's a good one to do, and I um, hopefully hopefully good at helping people shed a bit of light on. Uh, on stocks that they look at. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly uh, important at the moment to be uh, to be casting a, a particularly uh, circumspect eye over anything you might be considering buying. Thank you very much, Phil. Thanks, John. I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this week's Investment Hour and a bit, but there is a lot more in this week's magazine 
and on the website. As well as Phil's column, there is all the usual insights in the comment section from Mr. Bearball, Chris Dillo, who's looking at the potential shape of the recovery, Simon Thompson and Michael Taylor, who, unlike Warren Buffett, isn't scared of playing airline shares at the moment. Phil alluded to the difficulties finding safe income stocks earlier, and after Shell's shock dividend cut, Alex Newman is asking in this week's Taking Stock column whether there are any sacred cows like the Shell dividend left in investing. And to uh, complement that in the fund section, Dave Baxter is looking at whether bonds can fill the income gap left by the dividend slaughter. Results are once again thin on the ground, but there are plenty of ideas in the mag, including the usual tips. And Algie Hall is on the hunt for growth shares with what he calls his strategy screen. And James Norrison has been looking at what America's biggest hedge funds are doing during the crisis. But the star of the show is part one of our annual AIM 100 survey, which we delayed a few weeks this year to make sure we could properly assess the impact of COVID-19 on the junior market's main constituents. It's such a huge undertaking that we always run it in two parts, and next week we'll be looking at AIM's biggest constituents, some of which we'll talk about on next week's podcast when we return to the subject of healthcare. Lots of very interesting companies in that space in AIM's top 50. But now, thank you all for listening. Thank you to our guests, Mary, Nalushi, Algie and Phil. And thanks, of course, to my excellent co-host, Megan. Pick up the magazine in all good news agents, the AIM 100 Part 1, how London's junior companies are faring in the shadow of a pandemic. Or if you're still waiting indoors for lockdown to end, hopefully very soon, if rumours are true, then get onto the internet and subscribe. Take care and speak soon.